Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Hey, Steve, how are you? Another Wednesday, another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. What's going on, my man? I'm doing great, man. Ready to record. Well, today we are talking about a really serious topic and a topic that is also timely, which is athletes and mental health. And it's timely because um, it's Olympic season. And during the Olympics, individuals face such immense pressure. They're on a stage where the measures are so objective and the whole world is watching. And we're going to use that to riff more broadly on what we can learn from Olympians, what we can apply to our own lives, and perhaps some of the things that we ought not to apply to our own lives. But before we get into that serious topic, we're trying something new on the podcast, and that is a sponsor or a fake sponsor. And our goal is to bring a little bit of levity to some of the trends in the excellence, human performance, and longevity space. So without further ado, we're really excited to tell you about the first sponsor, fake sponsor of the podcast. And this is the IFGM diet program. Intermittent fasting plus granola and milk, IFGM. Here's how it works. We don't eat from 10 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. And then in the morning, we sneak in some granola and milk. This activates all the pathways. Steve and I, we've had a pretty good run. We attribute all of our successes to the IFGM program. It's really cutting-edge stuff. Steve's going to tell you a little bit more. Dude, hold up here. You're missing a vital point. You can't activate all the pathways at once. That just doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. You've got to activate some, then turn some off. You've got to lift weights to activate mTOR and then take resveratrol to inhibit it. It's like muscle confusion, right? Only it's better. It's hormonal confusion. And when you confuse the crap out of your body, you get the best results everywhere. So in this IFGM plan here, you're missing a vital point. We got to add more confusion. You have to add coffee. Come on, man. You didn't think that I thought of that, Steve. Of course, coffee is a part of IFGM. The diet says nothing about fluid intake. What coffee does for you on this diet is it stimulates your intestines, which, if you're anything like us, often leads to a solid you-know-what. And man, starting your day with a solid you-know-what, dopamine levels go through the roof when that happens. It's like you're in a casino when you drop the kids off at the pool. It's phenomenal. So I've got a couple other questions for you, Steve, since right now we've just got a diet, and we're really interested in being a lifestyle brand here with IFGM. So what does your peak performance and longevity protocol entail right now? I mean, I'm always looking to learn, and you're a big influencer on the internet, and I know that you're a man of science. I'm curious, do you stare at the sun for 94 minutes every morning? I am all about the science, but we've been looking at the wrong science. We've been looking at longevity in mice when we really need to look at longevity in dogs. So take my dog, for example, Willie. He's a really good boy. But what he does, it's fascinating. He only eats at 8 p.m. once a day. So he restricts his diet to 
15 minutes. Except there's there's one exception here. He eats human food out of the trash at any time. So if we throw something away and he can get it, he's going to devour it. Chocolate, pizza, doesn't matter. So I call this the 23-hour keto fast plus trash food diet. And that's the key. But it's not just the diet that I copy because it's it's the lifestyle that we're after. Willie does these other things in these dog studies that are, I think, proven by science because I get to see Willie all the time, which are hours of laying in the grass, which allows him to have this optimal grounding and light exposure. He also puts himself in these, these fits and rages of adrenaline mostly when the mailman comes. And then he has this optimal, perfect exercise routine, which is alternating long walks for his endurance, plus flat-out sprints to chase squirrels. He also has this thing that I think improves his psychology, which is he claims ownership of any territory possible. Wow, bro, I am mind-blown. Can we get Willie on this podcast for like seven and a half hours to detail this groundbreaking theory and practice? I do have a few questions, though, that I'm just dying to ask. So let me lay them out here. The 23-hour keto plus trash food diet makes total sense. I think it's spot on. But what does this mean for eating copious amounts of Bojangles and Long John Silver during the feeding window? It's trash food, right? Can we do this? When Willie's on the grass, is he on his stomach or back? I mean, the rest of what you said actually all seems fairly basic, but there is one more question I'm dying to ask too. This is so important for the listeners. How does Willie possibly do all of this whilst breathing out of his mouth and not nose breathing? He's giving up all the benefits of nose breathing. I don't understand how he can be so healthy without nose breathing. Oh man, those are some really good questions. So here, here's the key. This is the important part. You can eat your Long John Silvers. Why? It's the hormonal confusion, man. Like you go, I should have known. You go 23 hour fast, and then, you know, you're keto, you're all these things, and then bam, flood your body with insulin. It's great. Confusion. And as far as Willie goes, man, that's great. I'm glad you asked the question on, on nose breathing because we know that is vital, the key to everything. Well, what Willie does is, is amazing. It's not just nose or mouth breathing. It's both at the same time to optimize the nitric oxide activation, plus simultaneously growling and snarling and barking to increase testosterone and HGH levels. It's, it's phenomenal. Wow. I mean, who knew? All of these mice studies, and we've been barking up the wrong tree. In this case, literally. Of course we should be looking at dogs. And listeners, this is important. Don't forget about the longevity benefits. Now, we all know that one of God's greatest mistakes is the too short lifespan of dogs. But based on our proprietary algorithms, if you're a human on the IFGMW, W for Willie, if you're on that lifestyle program, the dog your multiplier goes from 7 to 17. So a 10-year-old dog is a 170-year-old person. This is our model, but we're really confident in it. 
And we've run all kinds of algorithms. Just don't ask us to show them to you. And also, there's one other big point. And I know this is a controversial topic, Steve, but it would be intellectually dishonest not to raise this. Dogs don't get COVID. They don't. Dogs don't get COVID. And if you wonder why, I mean, perhaps it's all the stuff that we've been talking about. I mean, listen, I'm not saying you have to believe me, but there's no proof that it's not all of the above. I'm not saying for sure. I'm just saying, theoretically, I think you get what I'm saying. Could the IFGM slash W diet lifestyle program? Dogs don't get COVID. Maybe we wouldn't get COVID if we just starve ourselves for 23 hours a day, eat copious amounts of Bojangles and Long John Silvers, and chase the mailman. Dude, I, I think you're on to it. I think you I think you you figured out the key. And and I think it it goes beyond that. There's one missing piece that we haven't talked about that you know, is backed by some, a little bit of science and some theory. And that's, that's this thing that Willie does, which is, it's not just about chasing the mailman or the diet or the fasting. He also eats, sniffs and eats other dogs. You know what? He eats poop. He's a poop poop. eater. Fecal transplants. Fecal transplants, man. They're all the rage. Gwyneth Paltrow was talking about this years ago. I should have known. It boosts your immune system. (laughs) Yes, this is gold. I can't believe we've just stumbled on this. How do we proprietize this? Oh, man. I I think this is, I think we stumbled on the key to obesity, health, climate, COVID, everything else. So we did it. This is it. We need a supplement line, but I think we cured everything. Wow. And I mean, this is really, truly empirical science. I mean, you literally live with the subject, Steve. And correct me if I'm wrong. I want to make sure. I want to get this for the record. Willie is not a purebred. He's a mixed breed, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. That means we can be confident that he represents all species. So as an experimental subject, he is perfect for discerning, improving this lifestyle. Man, this is the beauty of today's world. You can just get going with an idea like this. You can stumble upon the key to health, happiness, fulfillment, and longevity. You give it an acronym, IFGM slash W. Remember, we're talking intermittent fasting with granola and milk plus the Willy lifestyle and boom, there you have it. You are set. All right. Well, if y'all have made it this far and you're wondering if that was serious or parody, I think that's the whole point. And we will leave you to to wonder. Um, Talk to your doctor before making any changes. We are not doctors. So take everything with a grain of salt. And if you do try the IFGMW plan, we can't guarantee that you'll feel better because that is all a joke. So with that said... Now we're going to tell you about how you can actually support the podcast. So God, no, don't do the IFG, MW, MTOR, Autofiggy, Longevity Plan. What you can do, however, is go to Patreon, www.patreon.com slash The Growth Equation, and sign up to become a member of our more intimate Patreon community. We've got around 350 members right now. Here's what y'all get. You get access to a book club where we read a new book every month and have the best-selling authors of those books join us for live Zoom conversations. You get guides to longevity, health, and excellence that actually work. 
straight from Steve and I, based on all the latest actual evidence, you get a quarterly mastermind group where we come together once a quarter, quarterly, uh, with other like minds to discuss our biggest challenges in excellence in mental health. And our COO, Chris, right now is working on setting up a Discord slash Slack channel for community members so that you all can support each other throughout your own performance and excellence paths. So www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. Check us out there. And with that, on to the meat and potatoes of today's show. All right. So today we're going to talk about pressure, the Olympics, how to deal with it, what it all involves. And this was largely brought about by we watched um, World Class, you know, skier Michaela Schifrin go down you know and essentially on you know live tv they showed her sitting there on the side of the the mountain in the snow and just you know for 10 minutes essentially making sense of what happened which she is again one of the best of all time a gold medal favorite and then just kind of crashed out essentially and um had a series of rough Olympics to get the Olympics or to get her Olympics going. So that's what uh, we're going to dive into and uh, figure out. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the the framework that I want to bring to this conversation is a couple of things. So the first is when you think about the level of stress that an Olympian is under, Many people, sometimes myself included, we forget that it's not just being on the world stage with massive acute pressure. It's also the four, eight, 12, sometimes 16 years of single-minded focus and identity construction that is tied to your sport. So they're not just carrying the weight of that moment. They're carrying the weight of what for many Olympians is the better part of a lifetime. And I think that this is so important because if your kid fails or misses their turn in a competition, or if they get scared before their gymnastics meet, or I know as Steve will talk about from his coaching days of runners, you know, if they're nervous on the start line of a track meet, the answer is probably not, generally speaking, to follow Michaela Schifrin or Simone Biles of the summer games which is to avoid the situation, drop out, or, or kind of stew in despair. But your kid is not Michaela Schifrin or Simone Biles. So it's a completely different ballgame. It's like comparing apples to oranges. And I think that what happens is there are the people that think that they should protect their young kids from failure or really let them stew in defeat. And I think these people are generally misguided. And there's a lot of headlines how, you know, We can all learn from Michaela Schifrin to take care of our mental health, and we can all learn from Simone Biles to take care of our mental health, and so on and so forth. And I think that it's great to destigmatize mental health, but I actually don't think that regular people can learn from Michaela Schifrin or Simone Biles because their situation is so different. Now, equally misguided are all the people, almost all of whom have never had any skin in the game, that say that Michaela Schifrin or Simone Biles set a bad example. So... I think that this is really important. 
I think it's good to destigmatize mental health, but I think trying to compare your kid yourself to someone like a Michaela Schiffer or Simone Biles makes no sense. And the last thing that I'll say is I have all the respect for Olympic athletes because they are so vulnerable out there, right? They put everything on the line. It is so hard to imagine caring so deeply about something. And I think that that also leads me to reevaluate that perhaps we shouldn't lionize and make heroes and worship athletes because it really doesn't help anyone, including them. So that's like my opening manifesto here. I think the three things to unpack are how, and I'm going to count on you to unpack these, Steve, because I've been talking too much, but this notion of like, it's not just acute pressure, it's a life of pressure. The second notion, which is the right decision and what we should be proud of for someone like a Michaela Schifrin or a Simone Biles is not necessarily what we should encourage in our own kids because it's apples to oranges. And then thirdly, like the role of athletes in society. All right. So let's do it. So let's start with that uh, acute versus that life pressure. And I'm going to set the stage a little bit here because I think um, I think this is important to understand is it's not just during that four-year cycle where an athlete says, oh, I'm, in, I'm training for the Olympics, like this is all that matters, blah, blah, blah. What you have to realize is that going back, all the way back to when whoever it is started their sport, you know, what often happens with talented athletes is, or phenoms or whatever you want to call them who are on their way to Olympic glory, is when they start it, their identity process is like in this kind of weird, what I'd call middle school, high school age, where you're trying to figure out who you are. But when you start a sport and have success at it, what that does is that immediately fills that gap and says, hey, holy crap, here's something I'm good at. Here's something I enjoy. Here's something that my classmates, schoolmates, et cetera, know me for. Like, great. So what happens is, well, everyone else is trying, you know, debate club and then quitting and then trying whatever other club or whatever other sport is athletes who are talented and of a high level often cement early, meaning they don't go through the standard identity negotiation process and trying on different hats and then throwing them away and trying something else on that everyone else does. You know, depending on the sport, this occurs relatively young. So I think that's an important founding piece because when your identity has been tied to this thing for, you know, since your teenage years or before, and then over that time you've had more success and you've gotten better and all that good stuff, All that does is just reaffirm that choice and reaffirm that identity, which means you tend to get narrower and narrower. And as you reach the Olympic level, it becomes pretty much the only thing in your life. And you've lived that way for a decade or more, depending on timeline. It's, It's it amplifies that pressure and expectations to the nth degree. Because you have, it's not like you have anything to fall back on. And this is the the difference between, you know, your kids playing soccer on the high school team versus Michaela Schifrin or Simone Biles. 
is they have all of this behind them leading to this point and have and kind of intentionally neglected like developing other parts of themselves or other parts or roles they could occupy in pursuit of this one thing. So there's no fallback. It's if I fail, I am a failure, which is a, a lot to take. And another thing I'd say on this that I think is important that differs from even 15, 20 years ago is that in our current life with social media and always on, et cetera, et cetera, there's, there's no real escape or the escape, there's no defined barrier. You know, if I'm Joe Montana in the, in the 80s and 90s, yes, I have a ton of pressure. But when I go home at night, it's me, my wife, kids, and that's it, right? The only other voice in my head could be if I turned on the TV or like read a newspaper. Those are relatively easy to, to, to deal with. But now it's not this like we don't have this ability to turn off. Now it's anywhere we go, anywhere we go online, if we sign into any social media, like we feel not just the news organization's pressure, but we have this like, you know, everybody essentially. So it's it's amplified that pressure and expectations to the exponential degree. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because I tweeted, you know, something pretty similar to how I opened up this discussion and someone in completely good faith asked if there's a way out of it and proposed that a lot of this stems from insecurity. And I think that some of that is true. And then what I pose back to him is, is there a way to be an athlete at that caliber and not be insecure? Would you have to just lock yourself in a dungeon and have no communication with the outside world? Because it's, it, we can all think that we're internally motivated and driven and we'll keep our strong sense of self-worth and all that. But then our brains you know, we love Annie Purvi Murphy Paul's book, The Extended Mind. Like our brains are different than our minds and our minds aren't just in our bodies or our heads. They're out in the world too. And if you're constantly getting so much feedback at every freaking corner you turn for your performance, then how does that not breed insecurity? And maybe the answer is it doesn't. That's kind of where I come out. I think that, you know, it's easy for me and you with our very small platforms and even perhaps easier for someone with no public platform to say, well, this is just insecurity, but I don't think that's true. I think that if I was competing at that level, I would probably be addicted to external validation in some sense too, because like that's the water that you're swimming in. Yeah, no, I, I think here it's insecurity is human. Like it, it, it's, it's like a, almost a, well, that's just insecurity. And a lot of people say that. And it's like, well, maybe that's true. But like insecurity is part of being human. And part of the reason for that is, you know, we evolved to occupy small local tribes where status and hierarchy are a thing. Like it's a very human thing. And like to deal with that, it was easier to deal with with, you know, 20, 30, whatever, 40 other people in your 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 world because you didn't see beyond that. And it still sucked, but you you could deal with it. I think 
in our current world, like it's amplified again. So when we look at insecurity, it's like, yeah, that's just insecurity. Well, no shit, but that's because you're human. I mean, you look at any great athlete. If you watch the the Michael Jordan, you know, documentary, The Last Dance, and Jordan's one of the greatest of all time in any sport. Like those interviews reek certain certain parts of them reek of like insecurity, right? Where you're still trashing people, you know, decades later or holding grudge. Well, should we look down upon Jordan on that? I mean, you can make your judgment for yourself, but I just look at it as like he's a human being, even though he can do incredible things that, you know, many of us can't even dream of. Like he's human. We all have insecurities. We all have these deep, you know, needs or fears that, that, you know, keep us up. Yeah. So I guess to round out this first topic, um, I do think that it is, it's not like we're not going to solve it here, but there would have to be some completely redoing of how sports are covered in the athlete's role in society. And I think we'll get to this at the third topic, which is like, perhaps we shouldn't worship these athletes, but let's move on then to the second big piece that I think is worth discussion, because I think that this is so important and I'm going to be like really explicit here. So nothing gets lost in between the lines. When Simone Biles pulled out of the summer games because of the twisties, which is equivalent to the yips, or just uh, for those that aren't athletes, you could think of it as like really bad anxiety that makes you disassociate from your body. And then when Michaela Schifrin had her fall and legitimately struggled, not because of physical injury, at least not that we know of, but because of emotional pain to get off the course there are kind of these two broad camps that emerge in the storytelling around these in big newspapers and on the news and and, and so on and so forth. And one camp, which tends to come from what we would say is the political left, says that these are great examples and we should take mental health seriously. And the other camp says that Michaela Schifrin and Simone Biles represent everything that's wrong with America and kids these days because they're so soft. And both of these camps are wrong. So the first camp, yes, we should take mental health seriously. No, they are not great examples. It doesn't mean that they're not great and what they're doing isn't great. They are Olympians. They are not great examples for most other people. And here's why. All of the evidence shows every last bit that the worst thing to do for anxiety disorders is what clinical psychologists call avoidance. If you avoid the thing that makes you anxious, all that that does is make you feel more anxious. Now, if you're Simone Biles, again, different. If you're Brad, Steve, or some kid, not different. So saying that avoidance is a good strategy for anxiety makes no sense. Now, in Schifrin's case, I think it's a little bit different because there is some validity to giving your ability to express feelings. And yet, in a sporting context, if your kid messes up, no, you don't want to support your kid crying and stewing on the sidelines because your kid is in Little League, not in the Olympics. So that's where they're wrong. And it's a big wrong. An even bigger wrong are the clowns on the other side of this that, again, say that Schifrin and Biles are weak. These people 
tend to have never had any skin in the game, it'll eat anything, let alone sport. They have no idea what they're talking about. They can't face the freaking pressure of playing in a beer league for softball, which is why they're probably so angry on the internet all the time. And they just have zero idea the level of pressure and identity fusion and caring. Those people, most of these people are playing a game, which is to get status. Schifrin and Biles, they like you cannot. I can only begin to imagine from working with some world-class performers how much you care when you are at that level about the thing. It really is like the loss of a child for someone like that when you go down in that situation. So the people that, again, tend to be on the right that say that they're weak, they set a bad example, they are wrong too. What they are is freaking Olympians. They are in a class of their own. They're carrying pressure that is different. The stakes are different. It is good, again, that they destigmatize mental health challenges and destigmatize pressure and destigmatize pressure and destigmatize sadness. It is not good to then say, well, what an Olympian does is therefore what everyone should do when we're in these situations. If anything, again, I think the problem to fix, which is the third part of this conversation, is why do we worship them in the first place as heroes instead of just really good athletes? Okay, I've teed up that, Steve. Chime in. I can speak from the experience of having a very young child. You can speak from the experience of coaching high schoolers and college kids. Oh, one more thing. I lied. I lied. I said chime in, but I've got one more thing to add, and I think it's important. Um, and I've asked him if we could say this, and yes, but without giving a name. We have a good friend who is a coach of very, very, very high-level athletes, higher-level athletes than even Steve and I coach at least at the moment. And this person said that it is true that younger kids coming up in national world-class sport performance situations, they are much more likely to avoid doing hard things because of anxiety, even if there's no chance that they'll harm their body. So this isn't just me and Steve pontificating. This is a real thing that's happening. We've heard it from triathlon. We've heard it from running. We've heard it from team sport. All right, now I'll shut up for real. All right. What a tee up. Preach, Brad. Preach. Um, so here's how I, I would address this. Is it's, it's pretty simple in my head. Is It's the nuance of the situation. What are you trying to overcome? What are you trying to get through? So to give the examples on, on Biles, right? Her issue was that, you know, pressure, expectations, all that contributed to a crazy stress response, which caused her to have this dissociative state. Okay. You can't push your way through a dissociative state, even if you're world-class or if you're gym down the street, right? What you have to do is step back and then dislodge and essentially re retrain, right? Now that's different than... You know, having an athlete who has pre-raised nerves and anxiety, maybe even, you know, very serious or very intense pre-race or pre-game nerves and anxiety, okay? What we're trying to do is figure out how to navigate through these things, not avoid them. Avoidance is like the last strategy that you use at the extreme when it's like, okay, I just want to survive, Right? Where it's just like, I'm just trying to survive. That's why uh, Simone Biles disassociated. Her body said, like, we're just trying to survive. Like, check out. No different than 
sometimes happens in in war where people just soldiers just dissociate even well-trained ones why because whatever reason they're just trying to survive what we're trying to do reason i mean in that case yeah like i think it's a great example because they they truly are just trying to survive yes exactly um so uh, and the military does everything to keep their trained to keep their heads on straight while they're doing that but it's still very difficult because it's human beings, human bodies, even the elite trained one. So I think I think the point here is if you're a coach, if you're a parent, whatever, you need to know what are what are kind of the stakes and what are you trying to ingrain. And I think there's this um, avoidance mindset that often takes over, this protective mindset that often takes over when you are looking at parents where it's like, you just want your, you care a lot. You want your kid to, to thrive. Like you see them struggling or anxious or down or what have you. But the worst thing you can do are the two extremes of the approaches we just talked about there. If you just say, Hey, you know, gut it out, tough it out, force your way through it. That's going to be backfire because chances are they don't know what that means or how to do that. If you say it's all right, you know, son, daughter, like we can quit, like walk off the field, be done. Well, all that does is teach you, hey, when something is hard, like we can default to this avoidance strategy. For most cases, the thing to do, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but is to teach them how to navigate the experience, the expectations, pressure, anxiety, to the best that you can. You're trying to teach them to cope in a positive direction instead of a negative so that it, it like instills this, this long-term idea that they can handle challenges and overcome them. And I'll, I'll give you one last example before I turn it over to, you know, turn it back over to you, Brad. Uh, my wife, who is a, a teacher and reading specialist, sees this all the time in elementary school, right? Kids default to being like, oh, this is really hard. Or, uh, you know, I feel anxious when I get up and talk in front of the class or whatever it is, right? And they default to often, like, let's not do this. And because she's in the classroom, like creating a safe and secure space, it's the perfect opportunity to be like, nope, like, you can do hard things. You can figure out how to do this. Let me like guide and scaffold you to get through it. But like learning how to take on challenges in a secure or safer environment is what allows you to eventually learn how to do things in a more and more difficult environment. Love it. The, um, the do hard things. I think is a really like important way to think about this and naming that you are feeling anxiety or you are feeling um, under threat is not bad. It's actually good. It's bad to suppress it, as you said, and just say, just push through, but it's also not good to avoid. And what's left in between is the option that we know from study after study and meta-analyses of how to work with anxiety and in many cases, depression is the best thing to do is to accept the thoughts or feelings that you're having, not judge yourself for having them, not repress them, not try to replace them, let them be there. Realize that that's a part of being a human and that generally the things that make you anxious or sad are things that you care about. 
take those thoughts and feelings along for the ride as you do the hard thing, so long as the hard thing is within reason. If your kid is 18 and a world-class gymnast and they're about to launch themselves 30 feet into the air and they're panicking, probably not best to send them to do that. If your kid is 12 and they're about to run a mile race and they're panicking because they might lose or they're scared of what it's going to feel like to run hard, probably best to help them work through that. Spot on. So why don't we turn to that last question, which is, you know, should we glorify hold up athletes and all this stuff? And I, I, I think so here I'm going to go, I'm going to switch roles and go out of the, out of the science and into the philosophy and take on Brad's hat. I think we turn to, to Joseph Campbell's work, right? Why do we glorify athletes? Why do we, because like we need these, these stories we need the, these like heroic journeys as a society and a culture. And Campbell would argue that mythology and myths like once served this role. And there's been a decline in that. So something else fills this role. And I think in our modern world, like sport has filled a lot of our like cultural narrative stories on overcoming and challenges and like hero's journey and all that stuff. And I'm not sure if that is uh, like good or bad. I mean, I think the question, well, I think it's kind of bad in the sense that it puts a lot of expectation pressure on human beings who don't get the advantage of being missed. But the, the other side of the coin is if we don't get it from sports, we're gonna get it from we're gonna create those stories, narratives like hero journey somewhere and get it somewhere. Like what becomes the thing? So then if 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 and I'm not disagreeing at all, I think that that's a really valid point and I never thought of it that way. So if it's literally in our DNA to have these hero myths, and athletes are gonna play that role for now, and if not athletes, then someone else, then Maybe it's not that we shouldn't worship athletes. It's that we should remember that they're full people and that it actually has nothing to do with us and everything to do with the organizations that bring up athletes and that they need to double down just as much on the mental health front and mental health training and mental health support as they do on the physical front, because they need to equip these heroes to like, to use Campbell's words, like cross the threshold and go into the belly of the whale and get eaten and not just treat them like parts. And unfortunately, I think a huge problem with elite sport, particularly like at the, you know, Olympic level is, and certainly and not all, a lot of people do it right, but in too many programs, the athletes, and I'm going to call them kids, because in most cases, they're kids or young adults, they're treated like parts, meaning I've got a hundred eggs and I'm going to throw a hundred eggs at the wall. And all I need is one not to break. And if that one that doesn't break gets me a medal, then I coach that one that doesn't break or I, you know, ran the the program in that sport and I get all the glory. And then, oh, guess what? When that egg is retires, even if they won the gold medal, that egg's no longer useful for me. So I'm just going to forget about it. And I think that so long as the Olympics has this mindset of athletes as parts, then parts of a machine and the machine is to win, then it's going to be screwed. And maybe instead of like turning the microscope on ourselves 
and saying we shouldn't worship them. No, maybe it's we should. It's okay. We need to remember that they're humans too. And actually, like the microscope should be pointed towards the the organizations that um, ought to be doing perhaps a more discerning job of nurturing these athletes and preparing them to be heroes on the way up. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's spot on, actually. I think it's, you know, I don't, it, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Like they're going to fill this role or somebody's going to fill this role. And if it's a societal, like if it's in our DNA to have somebody fill these this role of hero stories and all that stuff, then we better do our best to equip them. And I think to this point, organizations, as you've outlined, teams, et cetera, have failed because they're not not really equipped from a mental health standpoint, from an understanding how to navigate the world after sport, um, from a even a kind of what role model are you setting or example are you setting um, standpoint. So I'm in, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think we could do a heck of a better heck of a lot of better job to um to prepare athletes to be able to you know occupy this space that society has kind of forced upon them yeah yeah man it's tough i mean perhaps the the only way to try to wrap this up is to um well in addition to the summary that we always do which here it is real quick right don't have your kids at the same threshold for anxiety or sadness or despair or stewing is an Olympian. It's apples to oranges. Remember that these Olympians, it's not just about training acute pressure. It's about your whole being connected to this thing. And then to Steve's really good point at the end there, like we're going to worship someone. So if it's athletes, the bodies, the governing bodies, the coaches that are tasked with nurturing these athletes ought to provide more support. That's the summary. And then what I was ultimately going to say is like, man, my heart just goes out to Michaela Schifrin right now um, because I can't imagine like the amount of weight that she was carrying on her shoulders and how awful it must feel to make a mistake on that stage. And, you know, at the time of recording this, she had just had her fall. So, um, you know, that's that that's like the current moment. But how to bounce back from that too is really hard because, you know, think about in your own life, not on that stage, like there's an inertia to failure and inertia to mistakes. And man, I certainly know personally, I know you do too, Steve, like there's an inertia to anxiety. And just in this moment, I hope that um, she is being held by people that love her and she has support because um, it's got to be really hard what she's going through with everyone watching too, never helps. Yeah, no, all I can do is echo that. And, you know, I, I'll close with this because I think it's poignant. As, you know, months ago, actually, in, in Outside Magazine, they interviewed uh, Schifrin about the uh, Simone Biles take. And she had this to say, um, essentially saying she, I could definitely relate to the feeling. You feel like you're letting down your entire nation and that every single person person at home is disappointed in you it's a really isolating and lonely feeling you're just one little person who is trying to compete in your sport and do the best you can and sometimes it's really terrifying and i think like 
that screams out to me, which is having like empathy, love, support for the, all those who enter their arena, you know, because it is a very, very difficult thing to put yourself out there to go for something essentially all in on this one pursuit and potentially fail. And if you do that, like you've got my respect and you've got Brad's respect. And, you know, I think as a society, we have to realize that these people are human beings and sometimes they're going to fail or have things go wrong. And, you know, the best thing we can do is have empathy and support and understanding. Yeah, that's it, man. All right. Y'all take care of yourself out there. Uh, We hope you learned a thing or two and we'll catch you next week with the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.